You are listening to the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Franz. These talks are made possible in part by generous donations from our listeners. To find out how to support and take part in our community, visit zennovascotia.com. Many years ago, I read a book about meditation and about the effects of meditation. And the author was talking about the limitations we have in studying meditation. He was saying that we can measure brain waves, we can measure heart rate. There are certain things that we can see, but that at the end of the day, we have to ask the person who was meditating what happened. We have to go to that person, that person can say, it felt like this, I experienced this. We don't have any way of measuring that from the outside. And when I read that, I, I had been meditating for quite a while, but I, it made me feel special. I thought, yeah, that's right. That's right, there's something special going on and it's mine and no one else has it. And if you want it, you need to come and ask me about it. Mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty neat. The other day I was having a, a good conversation about what we consider to be visible and what we consider to be invisible and how we treat those things. And it reminded me of that book and how we have this human instinct, I think, to privilege the invisible. We do this in a personal way, just in terms of our own thoughts and feelings and memories and our own sense of what it is to be creative. And we think that's me, that's who I am. The things that I feel are me. And often the way that we move in the world seems like a clumsy and inadequate expression of that. It seems that we're never quite getting the whole thing out. So we say something that is unskillful or unkind and then we kick ourselves later and we say, but that's not, that's not me. Mm -mm. That's not how I feel. And even if we feel very badly about what we did or what we said, we have this comfort because we know, well, but the real me, the real me isn't like that. Or we might be intimidated by others who seem to be doing good works. Or we look at them and we say, oh, I know I'm not, I'm not doing that, but, but my intentions are really good. They're really, really good. Mm -hmm. Solidarity. And we spend a lot of time there and we make it more and more concrete. 
And we extend this to others so that we can watch someone else who is doing something good or what most people would consider to be good. But maybe we know this person very well and we've seen the three-dimensionality of this person. And we, we look at their good act and we say, ah, but I know, I know what she's really doing. I know her real motives. Or she, she said something really nice, but she doesn't really, she doesn't mean those things. I know. I know the truth of what I'm seeing because I know about the thing that's invisible. And the thing that's invisible is the thing that's true. We do this all the time. And then we bring this into practice. And of course we do. Because most spiritual practice actually is designed for this. It's designed to privilege the invisible. It's designed to give us a space wherein we cultivate the invisible to be more like what we want it to be. We pray or we cultivate positive qualities. We think about compassion. We offer ourselves in our minds. And then the way that we talk about this, or one of the ways in which we talk about this in Buddhism, is we go, we universalize this, so that we say that there's a relative truth and there's an absolute truth. The relative truth is the one that we can see and the absolute one is the one that we can't. And no matter how hard we try, we rank them. So that the absolute truth is a little bit truthier than relative truth. Sometimes we chant the harmony of difference and equality. Difference is relative, equality is absolute. We like to talk about how they come together. But still, the absolute is so much more interesting. It's what we think we might access with the mind. It's not clumsy. It's not dirty. It doesn't get mud on its feet. The relative is messy. The relative is just as clumsy and awkward as we are. The relative feels like an inadequate expression of the absolute in the same way that the way that I speak to someone whom I've just met feels like a clumsy expression of who I really am. And who I really am says just the right thing because I see my potential for that. And besides, later in the car, I think of what the right thing was. And so it was always there. I could have nailed it. Right. 
but I blew it. That's my visible self. And there is no greater comfort than to imagine that my visible self is not as true as my invisible self. But what I wanted to bring up tonight, and it's the same thing I bring up all the time, that this practice and this tradition, it would not be an overstatement to say that this tradition and this practice stand primarily as a response or as an antidote to that kind of thinking. To the idea that there is an inside and there is an outside. The idea that there is visible and that there is invisible and that they're distinct. I'm not saying things don't exist. You have ideas in your head and I can't see them. So there is something that's invisible. But your ideas shape the way that you move and the way that you move shapes your ideas. So that there is no useful way to talk about them as being separate. We cannot speak about them in isolation. When Dogen says, practice realization as one word, he's talking about this. He's saying realization is not invisible. Mm -hmm. You can see it. You can show it. And if you don't show it, then you're buying into the lie that one can exist without the other. We have this famous story in which one monk approaches another one who is doing zazen and he says, what are you doing? And the monk says, I'm making a Buddha. Right there, the story's over. Just because you know that if you did this, you know that if you approach someone and you ask that question and that was the response you got, you'd smile a little bit. You'd think, this guy's full of himself. Right? But he was speaking from a, you know, a place within the tradition. And so the monk who asks sits down and he starts polishing a tile. We've talked about this story before. A roof tile, one of these clay thick things, and he's just polishing and polishing and polishing. It should be very irritating to the person who's doing zazen. And finally, the guy doing zazen, he says, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm making a mirror. Things are what they are. The inside and the outside are the same. You can polish a tile forever. And it will never be a mirror. It will be tile forever. Huh? 
And in the same way, the only way that a Buddha can sit in Zazen is if a Buddha sits down to do Zazen. There's no phone booth moment in the, mo- in the middle. You don't change costume halfway through. You're there or you're not. And similarly, this story points to the question of what is enough. The first monk could have asked the second monk, what are you doing? And he could have said, I'm saving all beings. Mm -hmm. The story would continue the same way. Whatever you're doing right now, not in a hypothetical right now, but this right now, whatever you're doing right now is the expression you're making in the world of this thing that you think is invisible. This is it. Whatever it is, it's revealing you. We're so much more exposed than we think we are. We think no one can see what's going on with me. Because we have a story about what that is. And sure, You know, if I'm reminiscing about something that happened to me 25 years ago, no one can see what that is. But while I'm doing that, you know, I'm not looking both ways while I cross the street. And everybody can see that. And that's what I'm actually putting out. Zen temples are famous for this this, uh, obsessive quality about shoes. You have to line up your shoes just right when you take them off. And what is said always, 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 is it however you kick off your shoes? That's your mind. Mm -hmm. If I want to know the state of your mind, I'll watch you take them off. Mm -hmm. This isn't quite as deep as it sounds, which is to say, it doesn't mean that when I see you take off your shoes, I know your inner heart. I don't know about the novel that made you cry. Right. What I know is about the gap that you're feeling between what you think is inner and what you think is outer. Mm -hmm. And so when you kick your shoes off and one goes over here and one goes over here, you're privileging the inner. You're saying the outer doesn't matter.
when you bump a picture and then you stop and you fix it, you're saying, I'm engaging. I'm touching the world. And this I is not divided. Going back to relative and absolute truth, the joke of relative and absolute truth, because we talk about it so much, and it, it takes such a, a, a central place in Zen, is that, of course, there is no such thing as absolute truth. There is no such thing as relative truth. There's only truth. Oh, and there's not that either. <laughs> because in order for there to be truth, there would also have to exist something that is not truth. And something that is not truth can't exist. So when Dogen talks about Buddha nature, he kind of pulls us in for a while and he says, oh, there's this thing called Buddha nature and it's everywhere. And then you turn the page and he says, no, it's really everywhere. And then you turn the page and he says, there is not one thing that is not this. I'm just using this as a synonym for reality. There's no Buddha nature and not Buddha nature. There's no truth and there's no and not truth. There's no inside and outside. Not if we pay attention, not if we notice. And so what do we do with this? I'll tell you what, what, what I've done with this and what most people do with this is we think about this and then we go and we, we, we make it invisible, right? We cogitate on this and we try to retreat into the thing that we think other people can't see. And we think, is this true? Is it true? Don't do that, that's not the point. But what I want to invite you to do is to notice the way that you do this, the way that you make this gap, the way that you insist on the separation. When you do something that you think doesn't feel quite like you, or maybe doesn't feel like your best expression. As you find yourself thinking, ah, oh, but that's not me. Take that opportunity and look at what you just did. Look at what you're doing and instead say, this is me. This is it. I can live myself, my life with the full force of this thing that I perceive to be inner, or I, I, can, I can try to hold that back as if it's something that's mine and something that's, that's real and something that I can keep. And then I engage with the world in this very light very surface way. But the world doesn't know that. The, the world doesn't know that I'm 
that, that, that deep down it's much better than what I'm showing. Having an inner world that you insist on keeping invisible is, is like finding a $20 bill and putting it in a box and saying, this is great, I will never spend this. Spend it, expend it and take responsibility for it. And then don't make up a story about it later. <laughs> about how that was a misrepresentation. A misrepresentation of who you are is impossible because you're the only person doing it. This news usually comes from me as bad news, but it's a starting point. And it's where I'll stop. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com. <laughs>